This was intended to be a quick excursion into John, uh, really to try and build a, a uh, foundation and just reminding ourselves that we are going through John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And as I was saying, trying to really build a, bit, a foundation as to how we get to chapter 3, verse 16, where we all want to go. Chapter 3, verse 16 doesn't stand in isolation. It's part of a, uh, uh, a portion in John's Gospel, chapter 3, where uh, it is preceded by a discussion between two men. And we've gone to that in the last sermon. So having said that, just open our Bibles to John chapter 3. And we will start reading from verse 1. And we will read down to verse 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To the marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are able to open your word in this way this morning, able to indeed yeah, you speaking to us from your word. We know that as we read these portions, we, we seek to find the truths that are there for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates these pages to us. We pray this morning we may indeed have our hearts and minds opened to your word, that he may guide us as we consider that which he has inspired the apostle to write. May our lives be changed because of the reading of your word. And as we See your word being applied to our lives. May we honor Christ in the way we live because of that. We pray for those this morning, Lord, who are not saved. As I hear this well-known portion of your word, so often used in evangelistic outreach, that they may see themselves in the light of Nicodemus and they realize they need to be born again. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. The single thought... In John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, is the thought of regeneration, or as John puts it in, in verse 17, of being saved. This is a go-to portion for evangelism. Um, the salvific theme of this, of this section is, is hard to miss. And the words that John uses to describe this uh, salvation are words like to be born again in verse 3 and in verse 7. He uses words like being born of water and the Spirit in verse 8. And he uses words like have eternal life, verse 16. John also links uh, two supporting thoughts to being saved. Number one, he says, uh, this is how a person should be saved. He tells us how a person becomes saved. And secondly, he tells us what happens to a person who has become saved. 
He doesn't just state that you must be born again, but he leads up to it through how that happens, and then he leads away from it, saying this is the result of being saved. We started this consideration of this passage by looking at a dialogue between two rabbis, if you consider the verses 1 to 3. And there we saw that this uh, rabbi, uh, Nicodemus, a noted rabbi in Israel, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and the teacher of Israel, how he meets with Jesus. And Nicodemus addresses him as a rabbi, hence the dialogue between two rabbis. And Nicodemus uh, addresses him as a teacher come from God. We got this far uh, as verse 3, last sermon, and we briefly touched on verse 3, and so we pick up this morning by going back to verse 3 shortly, just as a precursor to the next section, which is also the title of this morning's sermon, A Division Between Two Kingdoms. Verse 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus responds to Nicodemus, ignores the Pharisee's greeting, and goes straight to dealing with his immediate and only need. He needs to receive eternal life. Jesus does not become distracted by his apparent cordial greeting, because Jesus can see his heart. He goes beyond the words that's coming out of his mouth. John has prepared us to see this in chapter 2, verse 24 to verse 25, we, John records this about Jesus as he meets and uh, performs miracles and signs before a group of Jews. Uh, verse 24 of chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to be witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So in John chapter 2, John prepares us to understand that Jesus doesn't need to hear what comes out of your mouth to know what you are thinking. And this was true of Nicodemus. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, his life, his heart, his desires are an open book. And therefore Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus never asked a question, but he gets an answer nonetheless, because the question that was not posed was the one that he should have asked in the first place. Remember, other rulers have come to Jesus and said to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At least they acknowledged that they needed to receive eternal life. Nicodemus comes with a statement uh, and tries to uh, uh, approach Jesus by saying something that appears to, um, to praise him. The statement made by the Lord Jesus brings two essential po- points about salvation into view. Number one, how a person becomes saved. And Jesus explains this by way of analogy. An analogy he chooses is the most basic one to humankind. It's that of being born. Every one of us has experienced this in our lives. None of us would be here this morning if we were not born. I suppose that doesn't need to be said. But this is the whole point of this, of this portion. How birth is the entrance into life. Secondly, another point that Jesus brings forth is that what happens when a person has become saved? And he speaks about how this becomes the passage or the access to the kingdom of God. I want to deal with that second part, the kingdom of God, briefly. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a, is a strong theme in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially Matthew when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven almost exclusively 
it's a strong theme. It permeates the, the, all three of those Gospels to a greater or lesser degree. And we can see that as the huge backdrop against what uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke teach us. It's only mentioned twice in the Gospel of John. It's not a major theme in that form in the Gospel of John. It's only found here in chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. And it's found one more time in John, where the, the kingdom is mentioned in chapter 18. Uh, Jesus is, uh, it's, a, it's the last day of the Passion Week, he's, he's being processed through various courts in Israel. And this, in chapter 18, he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate uh, looks at him as the Roman governor, a man who's not a Jew, and he says to Jesus, am I a Jew? In verse 35 of chapter 18 of John. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Uh, Pilate was actually um, um, upset. Did he deal with some more of this rabble-rousing of the Jews? He wasn't concerned, really, about what Jesus had claimed, or what had claimed about him, so much as it was disturbing his political agenda. However, Jesus answers him and says, My kingdom is not of this world. And this is significant to John chapter 3. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So John does not expand much on the kingdom theme. It's mentioned it twice in his entire gospel. And so neither are we going to try and expand it more than we have already, except to say the following. Number one, God has established two kingdoms. And this is all we have in the back of our minds as we consider John chapter 3. The first is his sovereign rule over all things by means of natural law. And this kingdom is mediated through human institutions which he has ordained. So the, the, the universal kingdom of God is all that you see around you. God is sovereign in this world in every way. And he rules and mediates through human institutions which he has appointed. This is the kingdom in which flesh begets flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh applies to this kingdom, this universal kingdom, this natural kingdom. This is the kingdom into which men are born by blood and by the will of the flesh and by the will of man. And every person born of a human parent has entry by virtue of the birth and access to this kingdom. But the second kingdom is a future kingdom on earth wherein he will rule his people by means of his word and mediated through the physical presence of his son, the man Christ Jesus. This kingdom can only be entered by being born again, John 3 verse 5, by being born of the Spirit. The second thing about these kingdoms, about these kingdoms we realize is that Christians are citizens of both kingdoms. We are citizens of both the universal kingdom and the spiritual one. As citizens of the universal kingdom, we should live holy lives, demonstrate kindness towards all people, and apply what it means to be a Christian in whatever sphere God has called us to. This is where we have a witness in the universal kingdom of God, where we become his ambassadors, his emissaries. We may not be of this world, but we are certainly in it, and here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We already read this morning earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are ambassadors in the universal kingdom of God because we are citizens of the future kingdom. Christians should proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ 
working towards gathering more into that future kingdom. And the way the current citizens of the future kingdom gather more into that kingdom is the essential truth of John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. How do we make others, or how are we um, um, involved with, with bringing others to understand that there is a future kingdom to which they should belong and need to belong as God calls them? It's through evangelism that men and women are born again and are qualified to participate in the kingdom in the future because they are citizens of the spiritual kingdom now. That kingdom is future in a certain aspect, but it is realized now. This is the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom that's not of this world. So we are part, we are citizens in both of those kingdoms. And we have a role to play in both of those kingdoms. A kingdom requires two essential things. A king and citizens. Without either of those, you don't have a kingdom. The king is the Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son. And he sits now at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for who is his. But it's be a day when he will come with who those are his own, and he's going to reign on an earthly throne of that of David. And he, the greater David, will rule with equity and with justice, and his word will be supreme. The citizens are those who are birthed into the kingdom of God by the Spirit of God. So Jesus is a king, and we are the citizens of that kingdom. And Jesus says all of that. He takes all of us to sit right now in so many words, and Jesus simply says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This, the, the preciseness of those few words says it all. Which brings us to the point about how a person becomes saved. Up until now, I've been using the phrase, as it appears in the English Bible, English versions, almost exclusively, to be born again. We all throw the word around all the time, and we do so comfortably. Now, I, 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 I don't want to use Greek words and phrases. I'm not qualified to do that, except that in this case, this word is going to help us perhaps understand how it unfolds between Jesus and Nicodemus because there is a play on words in more of their ways than one. But this word uh, is central because the word born appears in these first eight verses, I think about eight times, eight times. So it is central to understanding how the word being born is dealt with. So this word uh, that is translated born, or rather born again, the again part, means Three things, uh, as translated from a Greek word. The Greek word is anothen. And just remember that. I'm not going to expand any more on that. Just that it's to help us see what we refer to. The first and primary meaning of that word is from above. And it's used uh, in a way which you understand very clearly when I explain it to you. It's used in Matthew and Mark about the veil of the temple being torn in two. And what does it say? It was torn from the top to the bottom. From the top. It's, and it's significant when you think about this veil in Herod's temple was something like 18 meters high. That's a, a huge veil. No human hand could touch it. And so even in, the, in, in, in explaining how that curtain was torn, you see the hand of God linked to this word, torn from top to bottom. John uses this word more than once in his gospel, which shows that John has a penchant for using this word, anothen, to mean from above. In chapter 19, verse 23, he says about the, the tunic that Jesus wore, it was woven from top to bottom. Again, 
reminding us that something that ha- is being handled here has its beginning at something at the top. Now, it's just a tunic, but it's significant that the word is used to indicate from top to bottom. In that same chapter, Jesus is speaking to Pilate. He's been returned to Pilate. Chapter 18, as the course, he's been pushed back and forth. He's back with Pilate, and Pilate says to him, uh, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to, re- to release you and authority to crucify you? Chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So John clearly uses this word several times to indicate something from above. So the main and primary meaning of anothen, or the word that is translated again, is from above. Uh, you look in lexicons, it's the first word that pops in. But there's a second way this word's translated, uh, and it's in the lexicon, it's from the first or from the beginning. It's not used by John, it's used in Luke. And Luke says this in chapter 1, verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you. And so Luke uses that word, anothen, to indicate something that started somewhere in the past, and its significance in that its beginning. Thirdly, the way that it was commonly used which is actually the third form uh, in the lexicon is as it's used in Galatians chapter 4 verse 9. And it says here, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles to which you want, in which you once were enslaved, in which you want to be enslaved all over again? So that word can be translated in three ways, and while its most primary translation is from above, it has commonly been used in English versions to mean again. Our task is to understand how it's used here and whether one or the other or both apply and in which way, how does it do that. So, let's look at chapter 3 verse 4 to 8. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The questions posed by Nicodemus in verse 4 um, presents quite a number of interpretive challenges. And the implication of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus is not always immediately clear to the English reader. This is made even more complicated when we understand that this conversation most likely took took place in Aramaic. Now the Pharisees were more inclined to want to speak Hebrew, but not knowing the, knowing the, the, the facts clearly, it was most likely spoken in Aramaic. It's then translated by John many years later into Greek, and we read, the, uh, the, uh, read this portion in our English vernacular. So it's gone through a number of translations. So some of those things are lost uh, to the English reader, not knowing um, the original language. So we need to look at the context and try and see what is said between Jesus and Nicodemus to understand how they are using this word with other words that we'll soon see. We are acutely aware that while words are relatively easy to translate from one language to another, implications are not. And we're left to find out the meaning of the original by looking at the context to whatever degree we have access to information. What is clear is that there's definite disagreement between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
Whatever's happening there, the tension is, is clear. Uh, very much so by the answer given by Nicodemus in verse 4. It's unlikely that Nicodemus thought that Jesus meant that he had to undergo natural birth all over again. Now this is one way of looking at it, and many believe uh, he thought that, but Nicodemus wasn't a fool, understand clearly. He was a highly educated, intelligent man who was skillful at the nuances of languages and culture. This, is, this was his daily job. He did this all the time. He dealt in words and talking to people and twisting people around to believe what he said because he was skillful at the language. And he was a highly intelligent He was the professor of languages in Israel. He was the professor of law in, in, in Israel. He, he knew it all. So it's unlikely that he really thought that Jesus meant, well, you've got to be born again. It just didn't have clicked with him. He knew our Lord was not talking about being physically reborn, but he replied in the context of the Lord's analogy. And he seemed to grasp the implication of Jesus' words to mean that he had to start all over again. Some go back to the beginning because that's the implication of his words. Some Jesus was telling him that entrance to the kingdom of God had something to do with starting all over again. And so he takes the analogy that Jesus used and he, he rephrases it into two questions. And uh, he says, well, must I do this all over or start at the beginning? But he just could not process this in his works fixated mind. Nicodemus was a man who, like all Jews like him and others who taught like him, were teaching a works-based salvation. As long as you kept the law, as long as you were perceived to keep the law, and as long as you could confuse people to think you, you kept the law, to that degree... You were seen as a righteous man and probably could get the kingdom of God unless you did something seriously wrong. It was a works-based religion. They had taken the law and made the law what it was never intended to be. Instead of the law pointing to Christ, the law became an end in itself. And they fell into the trap of trying to uh, gain access to the kingdom of God by works. But when he hears what Jesus says, except to be a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, he is incredulous. Hence the words that Jesus says to me in verse 7, Do not marvel. Don't be surprised. That I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus' only response to Jesus' words in verse 3 was to ask questions that sounded as absurd as the words he was hearing. The words he heard coming out of Jesus' mouth was absurd to him. It didn't make sense. This was the first time he heard something like that, that personally, and it threw him. He was completely thrown so much so that he then asked these questions. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Knowing that those questions were rhetorical and what was being said couldn't mean this. The apparent literalness of his questions is rather crass and seem to indicate a sense of disdain on his part for Jesus' words. Now, I've tried to convince many of you that uh, we, give G- we give Nicodemus a lot of latitude in how... Um, amicable he is. This question he asks brings to the surface his chagrin, his, his throne. He's, he's not a happy man. Um, and, he, and, he, and he retorts rather than ask a question. He retorts. And the construction of this, which we can perhaps discuss on Wednesday, shows that he's not just asking a question because he wants to know the answer. He's actually pushing back. This is pushback from Nicodemus. Nicodemus clearly could not grasp the full meaning of what Jesus meant. His questions convey his confusion 
as he openly wondered at the impossibility of Christ's statement. <laughs> Nobody can go back into someone's womb and be born again. Jesus was asking for something that was not humanly possible to be born again. Jesus was making entrance into the kingdom of God contingent on something that could not be obtained through human effort. And remember, everything that the Kadimas had come to value was attained by human effort. The harder they worked at the law, the harder they worked at being good uh, Jews, uh, the, most likely, the more likely they would be to go to heaven, or so they thought. But if that was true, what did it mean for Nicodemus' work-based system? While Nicodemus is still reeling as he tries to gather his thoughts, he, he's now been thrown off his, his game plan, uh, and he tries to prepare for a further response, further response, Jesus answers back. And Jesus strikes while the iron is hot. While he's still trying to think what has been said, and formally perhaps his next response, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has made a statement, and he drives that nail home. He makes it clear. He leaves Nicodemus with no misunderstanding of what he's saying. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Because Nicodemus went there about being born again and being born by way of the womb. Uh, That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he says... Don't be surprised. Don't be confused. Don't, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So we come to this difficult portion um, in chapter 3, uh, verse 6, where it speaks about being born of water and the Spirit. And that is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching telling Nicodemus, because that is the link to the Old Testament. And this was a man who was the teacher of the Old Testament, which is why Jesus says to him in verse 10, are you, a ru- are you a teacher in Israel, the teacher, and you don't know this? This is the link to the Old Testament. And Nicodemus, when he heard that phrase, um, that which is born um, uh, of the Spirit is spirit, and that which is born of flesh is flesh, he should already have, he should have triggered him. Uh, especially when Jesus said in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. That wasn't a foreign thought to Nicodemus, just he wasn't able to place it here in the context of that meeting with Jesus that night. It's important that we understand what this being born of water and the Spirit is not. Once we get that out of the way, we can focus on what it does mean. It does not mean two births, one natural and one spiritual. Believe it or not, many people, many expositors, um, see that the being born of water means being born of a natural birth because you're born and there's the amniotic fluid that the water breaks, and so you're born, and then being born of the Spirit is that second birth when you are born um, spiritually. It's got nothing to do with that. Uh, how they get there is, a, is um, gymnastics in theology. You can't get there from the text, but people go there, and you may hear people say that. Another way, which is more commonly used, is they refer that, they, people believe that this water refers to water baptism. Now, uh, it cannot refer to water baptism in this context because Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and there is no church. There is no Christian water baptism. There's a baptism of John and there's other baptisms, but there's no Christian water baptism that could have triggered something in, in Nicodemus' mind. And Nicodemus would not have misunderstood the baptism of John. He understood what that was. So, we need to look to the grammar uh, to try and understand uh, or rather we need to look to the, to the Old Testament to understand why this was significant in Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Why did he use that 
phrase and what was his intention because it's clear that Jesus intended Nicodemus to create an understanding of the new birth because of that. The construction of the phrase in the Greek text indicates that the preposition of applies to both water and spirit. So in many people's minds, they separate the two out. They say water is this and the spirit is that. It doesn't appear in that way in the Greek text. The word of draws two words together, both water and spirit, and together they convey a single thought, a single action. This means that Jesus was clarifying regeneration by using two terms that both describe a single action, and that is the new birth. He was not saying that two separate things have to be present for for regeneration to happen. He was saying that when taken together, these words should trigger a response in the Jewish mind that would cause him to think a regeneration. It should be a trigger to the Jewish mind and particularly to Nicodemus. And this is why Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this truth because it was something that he, Nicodemus, should be very familiar with. Very few in Israel were as familiar with the Old Testament as Nicodemus was. Remember, he was the teacher of Israel. He was the one who taught others what the Old Testament meant. And so he should have been triggered by that link of water and spirit. The Old Testament, which Nicodemus regularly read and taught, often used water metaphorically to symbolize spiritual cleansing and renewal. Uh, that concept should not have been uh, new to Nicodemus. Numbers chapter 7, chapter 19 say, is, refers to the cleansing obtained by sprinkling of water when hyssop is dipped into water and ashes and it's sprinkled on that which needs to be sanctified, needs to be cleansed. In, num- in Psalms 51, verse 10, we read this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. We, may, we, we, we refer to that also this morning as David repents of his sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so David links cleansing and the work of the spirit to, make, to correct his spirit so that he, he, can, he can be true to the repentance he is at, at this point in Psalm 51. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, again an Old Testament portion which Nicodemus should have known clearly. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's a term that applies to God, the fountain of living waters. And you that cisterns for themselves, broken systems, they can hold no water. The Old Testament consistently links water in some form or another with um, purification or with uh, Sanctification. God promised that he would pour out his spirit on people as water in Isaiah chapter 32. And the result of that outpouring would be a new heart for those in whom the spirit came. And so there are a plethora of Old Testament texts that should have triggered Nicodemus' mind when Jesus said, being born of water and the spirit. It was something he should be familiar with. Thus, the revelation that God uh, brings to Nicodemus uh, by the words of Jesus Christ, his son, was go back to the Old Testament so you can understand what it means to be born again or born from above. If there's one passage that should have jumped out of Nicodemus was the passage that's recorded in Ezekiel 36, where this comes through so strongly, and he should have known this. That passage was central to, uh, to Jewish teaching. It's one of the most glorious passages of, of all scripture describing Israel's restoration to the Lord by the new covenant. And God says this in Ezekiel to his people. For I will take you from the nations 
gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. You can hear Jesus thinking of this as he talks to Nicodemus. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. A tremendous part of God's word. It was surely this passage that Jesus had in mind showing regeneration to be an Old Testament truth with which Nicodemus should have been well acquainted. And against this Old Testament backdrop, Jesus points out what was unmistakable. The only way that anyone can enter the kingdom of God is by the spiritual washing of the soul and the cleansing accompanied by the Holy Spirit. If you think perhaps that is not a New Testament teaching, well, let's listen to what Paul says to Titus. Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in Titus, it's all wrapped up in... In, in, in one sentence. It's, it's all about uh, the regeneration uh, that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit as He cleanses us and renews us and gives us hearts that are able to respond to Christ. And that work, how is it accomplished? Not by works, but by the Word of God. Remember, Jesus is pointing Nicodemus' mind to the Word of God. He's pointing him back to the Old Testament, which is the Word of God and which was the only word of God that Nicodemus had in his hands at the time. And so, it's to the word of God that we realize this washing and this uh, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, verse 25, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, had he cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Again, we find water as an analogy is linked to this cleansing process that's essential for us to become children of God and thereby become citizens of the spiritual kingdom, which we will one day indwell in the future also. That he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There is no other way to enter the kingdom of God, and this should have been plain to Nicodemus. Salvation in the Old Testament... It's no different to salvation in the New Testament. It's not by works in the Old Testament and by grace in the New Testament. It's by grace in all times. And everyone who comes to God comes because God is a gracious God. God has been merciful to them. God has forgiven their sins because they have been changed by His Word and by the work of the Spirit. And they've been washed and they've been regenerated and they've been made over anew. Jesus clearly meant that unless a person who has, has experienced a spiritual cleansing and the renewal from God's spirit, he or she cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is what is meant by being born from above or by being, by being born again. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, unless you have been reborn, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Do not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus emphasizes that the spiritual cleansing is wholly a work of God. And that is what is presented to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is not an intervention of a human hand or a human spirit. And in this passage, when Jesus speaks about flesh, he's not speaking about the flesh as Paul uses it, about that sinful, uh, fallen nature. He's simply saying that uh, human beings uh, procreate, and because of uh, what God has given them, the ability God has given them, they produce others like themselves. That's all it means. Uh, Aiden's an example. Here's a mother and a father, and because of them, we have Aiden. And so are all the children in front of us, and so are you. So, all he's saying is that flesh produces flesh. The natural produces only that which is natural. It cannot produce that which is spiritual. That which is spiritual must be born of the Spirit. And just as human nature can beget human nature, so also only the Holy Spirit can effectually uh, bring about spiritual transformation. Only the Spirit can produce the spiritual birth required for entrance into God's kingdom. Regeneration is entirely His work unaided by human effort. And this, you must keep in mind, this informs John chapter 3 verse 16. Because John chapter 3 verse 16 is used to convey something different by those who don't understand the full sovereign work of God. Now, you can't necessarily prove Reformed theology from John chapter 3 verse 16, but it doesn't stand by itself. It stands um, um, anchored on the background of God's sovereign work uh, his work of regeneration, unaided by any human effort. That's exactly what Romans chapter 3 verse 25 is about. So John has already introduced us in this chapter to this truth. He says in chapter 1 verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not, did not receive him, but all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so... Um, uh, progeny, uh, man's will, uh, man's ability, um, all man could do to produce a human offspring was totally uh, incapable of producing any form of spiritual offspring. That alone God can do. That is exclusively uh, the work of God, the domain of God, and in the power of God alone. For his entire life, Nicodemus had believed that salvation came through his own external merit. This is what he had been taught and what he had in turn taught others. Nicodemus found it exceedingly difficult to think otherwise. He couldn't get his mind around entering the kingdom of God by something other than doing good works. Jesus' words ran completely contrary to every rule Nicodemus had lived by. Everything Jesus said had shackled his carefully constructed works-based plan of salvation, a plan dependent on his self-righteousness, his religious accomplishments, his intellectual integrity. The simplicity of the words of Jesus was absurd to him and astonished him. So much so that Jesus says to him, as recorded in the NASB, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. It was absolutely necessary for Nicodemus to get over his astonishment at being so wrong about how one is accepted into the kingdom of God. 
He had to see his need to be born again if he was to enter. And he could never do so based on his own righteous or self-righteous work. And so, to try and get to get even closer understanding what this meant, as Jesus tries to unpack the mystical side of it, or the mystery side of it to many, uh, and make him understand, well, here's an analogy, other than being born, that brings it home again. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And Jesus uses the wind to illustrate how the spirit regenerates. Uh, the Greek word for um, spirit is pneuma. Here's me doing Greek words again. Sorry, Greek scholars. And the word, for, the word for spirit is pneuma, and the word for wind is pneuma. So Jesus literally is saying, um, the pneuma, sorry, you see that the pneuma operates as the pneuma, the spirit operates as the wind. And the comparison is a simple explanation of a profound truth. Firstly, although the general direction of the wind cannot be known, where it comes from, where it goes, we know that. That's obvious. We know the wind blows, but we're not quite sure where it started. We're not quite sure where it goes. Certainly in the day of Nicodemus, when the knowledge of geography and astronomy and everything else was limited, um, the wind was a mysterious thing. It came from somewhere and went somewhere. They knew its beginning or its end, but they knew and saw the effects. In the same way, that's how the spirit moves. The spirit's sovereign work of regeneration in the heart of a, of a human being can neither be controlled nor predicted. It comes when God decides it comes. It comes when God calls. It comes when God regenerates. And as that heart which now is able to respond to God in faith, as soon as that heart responds to something to, that they have no control over because God is moving sovereignly, that's when the spirit comes in and takes residence in the life. Secondly, uh, we perceive the presence of the wind by its effects. And so the effects of a transformed life uh, in the believer because of the spirit uh, is seen. And so people see the change. Uh, the spirit has come. They don't see the spirit coming. They don't see the spirit entering the person. In fact, the person himself doesn't see the spirit entering, but there's a change. There's a huge and immediate change. Remember Zacchaeus? This man who went up in the tree and uh, he wanted to see Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says, come down for I was a supper at your house. And that day, Zacchaeus is saved. How do we know? The evidence was there that the Spirit had changed his life. And he's not giving back money, something he lived for, in, in bucketfuls to everybody around him. So, Jesus ends this verse by saying, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. People born of the Spirit are similar to the wind. In that it is impossible for ungenerated people to understand what makes them tick. Stop trying to make your unsafe friends and family understand you. They can't. They won't. It's impossible. You live a life that they know nothing about. And so when they see the way you think, it confounds them. Look at Nicodemus. When they see what you do under duress, it astounds them. When they hear what you say, it offends them. Don't try and convince them through logic uh, how they should be changed. You can only convince them the same way Jesus is talking to Nicodemus by the word. He's pointing Nicodemus back to the Old Testament. And being Jesus, he then also calls him to repentance. Be born again. You must be born again. And then he takes that, you must be born again, and he says to Nicodemus in a personal way, and he makes a general statement, and he says, you all must be born again. Remember Nicodemus came and spoke about we know, walking out of chapter 2, so he came as a representative of some group of people, 
And Jesus says, not only must you, Nicodemus, but all that you represent, should all must also come to salvation by being born from above. So, what can I say in closing? Uh, there's so much more in this portion, verses 4 to 8, that one would like to unpack. There's so much more we can see, but what can we say in closing? I don't even answer the question of what John means when he uses the word anothen. Uh, Jesus uses the word clearly to mean being born from above. And that's primary meaning. Because Jesus is pointing to the Holy Spirit, to a work of God, to something that's outside of the human domain, outside of the human experience, unless God brings it there. So Jesus clearly uses it as being born from above. Nicodemus is driven to see this and to include the thought of starting anew. And he has rejected all that he had placed his faith in and he has to start all over again. And so he, he takes Jesus' analogy and turns, tries to turn it into a, into, a, into a natural one and he himself lies that he doesn't get the point. He somehow linked Jesus' analogy to being a rebirth, and this astounds him. And while the overarching meaning of being born again is to be born from above, a work done entirely by the Holy Spirit includes an aspect of being, of being born again, of becoming new. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says to us. So what about application? What do we take away from this for ourselves, first of all? You and I who have been born again. You and I know we've been born from above. And primarily, that's where our redemption has come from, from above. What do you and I do with this? What do you and I take away from a meeting between two men who are so different, and yet the words that they have spoken that night is still before us today to change the lives of men as they respond to the word of being born. We've been born again. The question we have to ask as we go through our our Bible uh, lesson on, uh, before the sermon, uh, has our lives been changed significantly enough that these um, um, convenient sins don't dominate our lives? Are our lives being changed daily, slowly, moment by moment, uh, into that which reflects one who has been born from above, whose life has been renewed, and who now is a, king, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom, and a spiritual kingdom. Nicodemus is driven to see that uh, he needs to be born again. And that question we also have to then bring to those of you this morning here who are not fully convinced that they are saved. Or perhaps you have never, ever faced this question honestly and openly. Do you share Nicodemus's bewilderment? Are you like him? Are you trying to get in the kingdom of God by striving to live a good life? And, and we all start there. Every one of us starts there. Nicodemus depended on his credentials for eternal life. Perhaps you're doing the same. By being part of a family where some members are saved, uh, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your brother, maybe you think because they say, well, that makes you a Christian because you're part of a Christian family. Nicodemus was part of a nation that were known as the people of God. This was God's chosen people. He's the nation chosen to represent him amongst all other nations. The nations from which he would bring the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Nicodemus had more claim to credentials than you and I would, could ever have. And it was of no value. Because he was still dead in his sins, depending on a works-based salvation, and had never been born from above. Never been born again. Perhaps you think that being part of LHBC, uh, in some physical way, this makes you uh, one of us. If you're not saved, 
You're not one of us. I can't say it more simply. I can't say it more bluntly. If you're not saved, if you've never been born again, if you've never been born from above, if Jesus Christ has not performed the work in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit, and if you're not one who's able to then claim to be a citizen in this spiritual kingdom of which Jesus is king, then you're not one of us. Or we're not chasing your way. We would befriend you, but understand clearly, we belong to a family that can only be entered by a spiritual birth, not a natural one. And so we only have one word to you. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you will never see the kingdom of God. If you're not born of the water and the Spirit, you can never enter the kingdom of God. And if you're not born of water and the Spirit, if you've not been born from above, then, then one day you will face this one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This one who is the king of the kingdom, one you will face him as judge and executioner because he will cast you into damnation. Our next uh, sermon will unpack more of that as Jesus denounces the credentials of his teacher. And I pray that that may strike home with the minds of those who are not saved. Do you understand that the ground you're standing on is sinking sand? You have no solid ground under your feet. You need to come to Jesus and be born again. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we've been called to salvation. We thank you that you in your sovereignty and in your divine power recorded our names in the book of life before the foundation of the world. We thank you that many's name, many names have been recorded there who you are still calling today. Many are still being called into this kingdom. Many are still being called out of death into life. Many are still being called out of darkness into light. And I pray that this morning, Lord, as many have heard these words recorded by the apostle, as he tells us about our Savior and the call he made to a man who should have known better and was so deep in his sin, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. May this strike home to all of our hearts, especially those of us who do belong to this kingdom, Lord, that we may live our lives as ambassadors of that kingdom, as children of God, as we honor Christ in all that we say and do, for his name's sake, amen.